When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to At The Mic with Keith, an independent podcast production. Welcome to this edition of At The Mic. I'm your host, Keith Malinak, and a very happy 4th of July to you. Notice I didn't say Independence Day, which I absolutely celebrate and so grateful to have been born and raised in the greatest country to ever exist, the United States of America. But the focus of today's podcast that you're listening to right now not going to be the history of the nation or the greatness of the United States. We could do a very long podcast in that respect. I'm sure you'll find plenty of options today if you'd like to go and find those. But this specific podcast is focused on the 4th of July, not Independence Day, because the 4th of July in 1872 was the day that arguably the best president the United States ever had was born. Talking about John Calvin Coolidge. This guy is so underrated, and I think it's on purpose. This is definitely intentional. Because if you discover who Calvin Coolidge was, especially as an American president, you'll realize that we are so far off track in this country as to where we should be. And you will learn of small government being the way to go. That was who Calvin Coolidge was, which is out of phase from where today's typical Washington politician sees the proper role of a chief executive. So I have in front of me, guys, I have, my gosh, I don't even know. This has got to be 40 to 50 pages of notes. I have no idea how long this podcast is going to be. I have no idea if now is the best time for you to listen to it. You may be busy, so save this. Save this for your car ride later. Check it out when you can, because I've got a lot of notes here and <laughs> I hope to get to all of them. But I want to start off with a quote from Calvin Coolidge that I thought when viewed through America today, my goodness, this speaks volumes right here. This is a quote from Calvin Coolidge to a friend of his where he says, isn't it a strange thing that in every period of social unrest, Men have the notion that they can pass a law and suspend the operations of economic law. That just struck a nerve with me uh, with the massive spending in the COVID era of the stimulus. Uh, this makes me think of the bailouts 15 years ago. George W. Bush came to mind, obviously, the quote, I've abandoned free market principles to save the free market system. Calvin Coolidge nailed it. Anyhow, I'm telling you, underrated president in American history. Okay, so 247 years ago today, the United States of America was born. But 151 years ago today, on July 4th, 1872, John Calvin Coolidge entered this world. Uh, and he's from Plymouth Notch, Vermont. A lot of his history 
is uh, based in Massachusetts, which we will get to. But um, born and raised in Plymouth Notch, Vermont. And like I said at the onset, an argument can be made uh, that Calvin Coolidge was the greatest president this nation has ever known. And I hope that if I've done my job properly, that you will come to that same conclusion by the time we're done here. So there's been, at least I'm picking up on it, a new respect for Calvin Coolidge in recent years. I think a lot of that has to do with the book Coolidge by Amity Schlaes, which I highly recommend. Uh, it takes you through the entire life of uh, Calvin Coolidge. If you want to get to, because I've read several books, I'm kind of a Calvin Coolidge nerd. Uh, no, not kind of. I'm definitely a Calvin Coolidge nerd. And there are several books out there uh, about him, if you can believe it. But uh, definitely would recommend Amity Schley's book, Coolidge, if you would like to get to know uh, one of our greatest presidents. But see, the thing that stinks about Coolidge is that when you see these rankings, he doesn't make the top 30, the top 10, the top five places that he belongs. He is people. He has been shoved out of our collective national consciousness. And I think there's a reason for that. Uh, the progressive era, of course, um, really launched after Coolidge's presidency. And that's, I mean, look, that, that's who writes the history books, right? The victors. And the era of small government um, really just ended when Calvin Coolidge's presidency ended. Because following that, you had the Great Depression. Uh, Hoover was a big spender, obviously FDR, and so on. We could talk about LBJ. We could do this all day, right? But how could... America's elites dare to teach us that a pro-America, anti-big government president who worked to eliminate wasteful spending and cut bureaucratic control in favor of individual rights and liberty, how could they possibly teach such a president ever existed? He was the chief executive of this nation between 1923 and 1929. He was such a fighter for small government and for the individuals that he is, I think, I think about as close as we've ever gotten to a real libertarian president in practice, especially that man would, the veto was an art form for Calvin Coolidge, <laughs> the pocket veto. I mean, this guy, uh, he didn't like spending money. And, and, and he had no qualms in, in saying that, even in the face of veterans who were trying to get uh, extra money after World War I. And he said, look, I'm not doing that. And, and he really stuck to his principles when it came to spending. That was his uh, one thing that you could say, like if you had to talk about, if you had to use one word to describe a Calvin Coolidge presidency, uh, it would probably be... I was going to say spendthrift, but budget, honestly. That man loved budgets, and he's such a nerd with numbers. But it was a very unlikely presidency, and it fell between progressive giants Woodrow Wilson and Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, the Coolidge presidency was counterculture, and, and today, of course, even more so. But back then, it even was, really. He presided over one of the most robust eras in American history. Uh, and I'm not even just talking about the economy, but I'm talking about technological innovations that happened during that time as well, because Coolidge knew the government should get out of the way 
of its citizens so that they could thrive. And they did. You've heard the Roaring Twenties. That was Calvin Coolidge. Absolutely, the Calvin Coolidge, uh, Warren Harding era. Because, I mean, that's Harding was the same way on spending. But again, Coolidge barely a blip on the American historic radar. He's ignored, really. And they don't even see that's a thing. They, they haven't even tried to demonize him yet. See, I contend he'll make it. You, you'll know that Calvin Coolidge is revered by too many Americans. Too many people are aware of the Calvin Coolidge story and the Calvin Coolidge presidency. Once they start to demonize him, that's when you'll know. Ha, we've made it. <laughs> so, uh, and they're, they're going to be wrong when they do this as well. Um, but first, we've got to introduce him. We've got to uh, respect him. And, uh, and then teach him uh, before we can get to that stage of demonizing him. But uh, like I said, today I want to introduce you to the man um, who must be known and understood by Americans so that we can get our country back to a successful mindset again. I'm, I'm kind of a, a, a walking uh, contradiction because I don't think that the, 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 the way to save this country is going to be on the federal level. I absolutely don't. But at the same time, I think that if there is a federal-based answer, it's going to be in somebody like Calvin Coolidge. If you can find somebody who, who has the principles of that man again, there's a chance, right? And there's a chance. Uh, he's fascinating. And so is, is history. And his place in it is so unique. And we need to study it. Now, when he was a boy, Calvin Coolidge saw President Benjamin Harrison speak. And I love history, man. Oh, I love this kind of stuff. So he sees Benjamin Harrison speak. OK, now later on, and we'll obviously go through Coolidge's life. This is going to be a while. I'm sorry. But later on, when Calvin Coolidge was vice president, he took a train to Kansas City. And there was a guy in charge of decorating the train station there in Kansas City to greet Coolidge's, uh, the vice president, uh, to greet his arrival. And the guy who was in charge of decorating it was someone named, see if this rings a bell, uh, someone goes by the name of Harry Truman. Harry Truman ended up decorating the train station for the arrival of Calvin Coolidge, the vice president there. And then 20 years later, I love this, 20 years later, decorating a train station would be the furthest thing from this guy's mind, Harry Truman, when he gave the OK to drop the atomic bombs on Japan to end World War II. History, man. But the Coolidge blueprint is there. It, we just need to learn it and emulate it here. But again, there's just much more to him, though, than just numbers and economy and budgets. He had an incredible five and a half years as the 30th president of the United States. He was born in rural Vermont, as I mentioned, and, and life was tough there in Plymouth Notch. It was an area that was settled by farmers after the Revolutionary War, less than 100 years earlier. And his father was a respected shopkeeper. And his dad was a notary public as well, which is going to come into play later on in our story. But he took the train to work every day, his dad. His mom died when Calvin was just 12 years old. Uh, she was 39, uh, likely suffered from tuberculosis. And then Calvin lost his sister of appendicitis. Uh, that's, that's what got her she was 15. This was in 1890. So she was 15. He was 18. So again, he loses his mom at 12. Loses his sister at 18. Uh, just a rough childhood. I mean, it's a different time, man. The, the hardships were incredible. So young Calvin 
is surrounded by death and sorrow in his teen years. Uh, he decides that he's going to go off to college, goes to Amherst College in Massachusetts in the uh, 1890s, uh, where by most accounts, I mean, he's a shy kid. Uh, he's from the sticks. You know, he's kind of awkward. He's not really expected to do well in school. Um, definitely, um, <laughs> definitely was never expected to go on and be the president of the United States. That's for sure. So <laughs> uh, he hated math, which I can identify with. But the thing is, I mean, he was all about saving the American budget system. Um, in fact, in fact, I ah, will get to this stuff. We'll get to all this fun stuff. Trust me, I'll, I'll, I'll cover this. Um, he loved historical documents like the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution, which I can also identify with. But he wasn't expected to have this extraordinary life by those that knew him during his college years. But he eventually had a class taught by a professor named uh, Anson Morse whose lessons on early American history really resonated with Calvin. Uh, also, his classes on philosophy and ethics with a professor named Charles Garman. That's when he really started to, to I guess, come out of his shell. Uh, the back half of his college years uh, were much different than, than the first half. And he eventually passes the bar in 1897, uh, a year early. And he opens up a law office in 1898 in Northampton, Massachusetts, eventually meets his wife, Grace. And this is such a fun story. I want you to imagine this. Calvin Coolidge is shaving by an open window. He's got a hat on, if I, if I recall, uh, and he's whistling. And Grace, uh, his, his soon-to-be wife, uh, she's walking by. She's a teacher at a school for the deaf, uh, but she's walking by uh, this extroverted uh, woman who was an incredible first lady in so many ways. So she's kind of like the yin to his yang. Uh, he's an introvert. She's an extrovert. She sees him from the street, laughs at him. Uh, the rest is history for the two. It's such an a incredible marriage. It really is. And he eventually enters into politics. Uh, he actually gets elected to more offices. And it's fun trivia. Which U.S. president has been elected to more offices than any other president in American history? Uh, well, it's Calvin Coolidge. Uh, he was a city councilman, a city solicitor. In fact, he only lost one election in his life. It was a close one, too. And that was for school board. And it's funny to hear him tell the story uh, after the fact, because he found all these people that that didn't vote for him, that he thought, you know, hey, I thought I had your vote. And so ultimately, people told him, look, um, we didn't vote for you because for school board because you didn't have any kids. You know, you don't have any children in the school system. And he's like, look, I just got married. Give me some time on that, all right? Uh, so uh, he eventually uh, gets elected as a state representative where he supported women's suffrage and eventually becomes a state senator, lieutenant governor, and eventually the governor of the state of Massachusetts. Now, while he's governor of Massachusetts, uh, he has to deal with the police strike. And um, and by the way, before I get to the police strike, which is really what made him a national figure, uh, I got to mention that just I think it was less than two weeks after he became governor, Boston suffered from you've got to look this story up. It is fascinatingly terrifying. It's the Great Molasses Flood, um, also known as the Boston Molasses Disaster. There was a um, a large storage tank filled with 
I think it was 2.3 million gallons. I know it was 13,000 tons. And, and, and the tank that was holding the molasses cracked. And, and then I just want you to imagine that much energy rushing through the streets at 35 miles per hour. It killed 21 people. It injured 150 people from age 10 to 78 died. They suffocated in these molasses. Oh, what a way to go. The event entered local folklore. Residents claimed for decades afterwards that the area smelled of molasses on hot summer days. I can believe it, too. And and it's just, I can't imagine uh, going out that way. And if there's not a movie about the great molasses flood, then there needs to be one. Anyway, back to him being governor, the Boston police strike. So he famously wrote to labor leader Samuel Gompers during the police strike that was happening. He said, there is no right to strike against the public safety by anyone, anywhere, anytime. Now, this effectively was what Ronald Reagan said when he was president uh, in the 1980s during the traffic control operator strike. If you'll recall, he had a, a portrait of Calvin Coolidge in the Oval Office. And that's somebody he really looked to uh, for guidance on these kind of policy matters. And, and there it was, plain as day. There is no right to strike against the public safety by anyone, anywhere, at any time. I know that at the time when Woodrow Wilson was president, whose politics were completely different than Calvin Coolidge's. And that's one great thing, by the way. If you read the Amity Schley's book, I, I, she talks about his political transformation. I mean, he really had to, to figure some things out early on. He wasn't just born being this conservative. It just This stuff just kind of came to him naturally as he discovered, you know, common sense. <laughs> uh, the Constitution uh, definitely played a large part in that. But what I was starting to say is Woodrow Wilson sent him a letter of congratulations on how he handled the police strike. Can you imagine that? Uh, so that that's that's a fun little nugget there. Uh, Governor of Massachusetts. And um, oh, I did love it when Coolidge was asked if he had any hobbies. And he said uh, running for office. <laughs> uh, there's so many fun anecdotes about the man. Uh, Calvin Coolidge once had a speech. Now, uh, before I tell you this. You recall that Lincoln's uh, Abraham Lincoln's uh, Gettysburg Address was considered very short. It was two and a half minutes long, the Gettysburg Address. It had 272 words. I mean, that's not much of a speech at all, especially when you consider the guy who spoke right before Lincoln there in Gettysburg uh, spoke for over two hours, I believe it was. But Coolidge, remember that was 272 words for the uh, Gettysburg Address. Coolidge had a speech one time because I mean, the, the guy was... He was a champion for brevity, unlike this podcast today, uh, which is ironic considering how little he talked. Uh, Calvin Coolidge, he had a speech that was 42 words long. 42 words. That's, that's going to be my speech today. In fact, in fact, here's a quote from him. He liked to say this, be brief. Above all, be brief. Another line that he used uh, once was, uh, it's better to kill a bad law than to pass a good one. It's better to kill a bad law than to pass a good one. So, like I said, Coolidge becomes a national figure when he breaks up the Boston police strike. And then we get to the 1920 Republican convention. It kind of had this 1976 Republican convention feel to it, 
where the Republican crowd was chanting for Reagan at Ford's uh, nomination. And the 1920 Republican uh, convention was held in Chicago. And I want to read just a few paragraphs, if you could bear with me, from Amity Schley's book, Coolidge. She paints a picture um, as the party elites, they've already made a decision about the VP nominee. So so, so Harding gets the, the presidential nomination, but when it comes down to the vice presidential nomination, it, it looked like the elites were going to get their way. So here we go. Amity Schlaes writes this. Upon learning of the Harding choice, Coolidge took his hat and disappeared from the Adams house onto the Boston Common. So he he knew what was happening back there. They wanted this Lynn Root of uh, Wisconsin. He was considered a, a compliment to Harding because he was a, quote, uh, semi-radical who would pull in the progressives under the Republican umbrella. OK, because that's that's who the party elites needed to balance this ticket. You got this conservative Harding. We need a progressive because remember, progressivism is really starting to to, to take root in America around this time. So uh, Amity Schles continues to write uh, Senator uh, Meadow McCormick climbed onto the platform to nominate Lynn Root and the Midwesterners found Harding too conservative and wanted Lynn Root uh, experienced it more progressive to balance ticket. Uh, at this point, though. Those in Boston could not know it because now, see, back in Boston, as we're cool, just hanging out and getting the getting the uh, the messages across the wire there. Uh, something in the hall changed. Lynn Root was not getting through. Lynn Root might be a progressive, but the method of his selection was retrograde. Another name was ringing. Coolidge, Coolidge, Coolidge. The delegates began to shout, uh, even though his own Bay State delegation was still not sure whether he was their man. Like, so he didn't have Massachusetts behind him for the vice presidency. Schles continues. Finally, Wallace McCammon. You got to remember this guy. This guy. You got to think Wallace McCammon of Oregon. The lawyer rose to nominate Coolidge. Coolidge, he said, was a man whose name traveled all across the country last fall when he stood for law and order and for the safety of the republic. His action surprised even those colleagues who had been concerned about a harding Linroot ticket. Quote, he never at any time mentioned to me about what he intended to do with reference to Coolidge, and I have since been told that he never mentioned it to anybody else, remembered James Watson of Indiana much later. So McCammont, he just comes up with this on his own. He keeps this secret. The crowd of Chicago, grim over the smoke-filled room and the wheeling and dealing from which it had been excluded, lightened up on the realization that it might determine the outcome. So in other words, the party boss is no different than today over 100 years later who thought that they could just say, this is who you're getting, this is party approved, this has already been predetermined by the party elites, you're going to have to take Linroot and be happy. And so the delegates were like, mm, no, I think we're going to go with a guy named Calvin Coolidge. And it's all because of uh, Wallace McCammont of Oregon. So 15 states seconded the uh, nomination. The cheering crowd drowned the other names out to such an extent that some of those attending were displeased. It was as though a cow kicked over a lamp, the Globe reported, referring to the original Chicago fire. The flames bursting out in every delegation ran around the galleries as if on the wings of a gale. And Senator McCormick was left standing on the burning deck whence all but him had fled. Uh, because now McCormick was the guy who was trying to nominate Linroot to get this thing over with. Uh, impressed, the reporter opined that uh, the Coolidge fire was the first real holy 
unpremeditated stampede that ever took place at a national convention. That from the book Coolidge by Amity Schlaes. Love that. So we've got the 1920 uh, presidential election, uh, the season now getting underway. Coolidge, by the way, he had told his friends, ironically, and his family, that after the Boston police strike that he came out ahead on as governor of Massachusetts, he told those close to him that I will probably never win another election after that. And of course, it had the opposite effect, and it actually propelled him to the vice presidency. Uh, people loved how he handled things. And like I said earlier, even uh, President Woodrow Wilson uh, telegraphed a congratulations to him. Uh, so he becomes the vice president under Warren Harding, someone who, like Coolidge, is ready to slash taxes. Let's cut spending. Let's get government out of people's lives. They agreed on that wholeheartedly. And facto, see, he still was this, I, I don't want to call him vanilla, uh, because I don't think that that's fair. But he was still kind of unknown. You know, we, we didn't have mass media back in those days. We had newspapers. Uh, radio hadn't really taken off yet. There was definitely no television. But I just love a story from his life where he's living in a hotel there um, in Washington, D.C. I think it's a Willard Hotel, right? Yeah, the Willard Hotel. And it catches fire. I believe that's the one that catches fire. But anyhow, they have to clear out uh, everybody from the hotel. And when it's time to go back in, a policeman stops Calvin Coolidge and doesn't recognize him as being uh, someone who, who is supposed to be going back into this really nice hotel. And he's like, and who are you? And he's like, I'm the vice president. I live here. <laughs> oh, the poor guy. But uh, here's, a, here's a fun excerpt as well from Amity Schley's book. They're living in the Willard. Now, he's an animal lover. And he, I mean, he just, he's always been around animals his entire life, growing up uh, in Vermont uh, on the farm. And as you will learn later, tons of pets in the Coolidge White House. But when you're in the hotel, you couldn't have pets. So anyhow, as Amity Schles writes, cats like children did not fit in at the Willard. One evening, Grace found a tiny consolation because they couldn't have pets, in the form of a family of mice <laughs> who had found their way into the room. The mice returned often, and Grace fed them bits from the hotel table. Uh, the other visitors might criticize her etiquette, but uh, in the mice, quote, I firmly believe I thus acquired some friends in Washington who would have pronounced me the perfect hostess, Grace wrote. Uh, Coolidge, for his part, uh, read constantly, uh, beside, uh, I just I, I included this part in the story. I want to tell you about the mice, but I wanted to keep reading here because on his bedside was a table stacked with texts on tariffs as well as the Constitution and other documents. Love me some Calvin Coolidge. Okay, so Warren Harding is president, and he dies of a heart attack on August 2nd, 1923. And at the time, Calvin is staying at his dad's house in Plymouth Notch, Vermont. Word gets to the farm. Uh, I think if I remember correctly, they had to they had to set up a telegraph wire or something to get to the farm as the news was breaking. It's just, I mean, think about it. It's 1923 in the middle of nowhere. It's the middle of the night when word gets to Coolidge 
that, hey, congratulations, you're now the president of the United States. And so by the light of a lantern, his dad administers as notary public, as he administers the oath of office. They had to find a, uh, I mean, they didn't have to, trust me, it's the Coolidge's. They had a copy of the Constitution available there, but that's what they used, a family uh, copy of the Constitution that they had there at the farm. He takes the oath of office. Uh, he says a prayer with grace. He comes downstairs. He greets reporters. Uh, who Somebody asked him if he thought he was up to the challenge, to which he replied, quote, I think I can swing it. <laughs> uh, Calvin said, you gotta, lo you gotta love the parlance of the 1920s. I think I can swing it. Anyway, uh, Calvin's son, uh, Calvin Jr., because he had two sons now, all right? And uh, his son, Calvin Jr., was 15 years old and working in a tobacco field when uh, Vice President Coolidge became President Coolidge. And when the news broke, uh, someone working with him out in the field said that if my old man were president, I wouldn't be working here. To which Calvin Jr. replied, if your old man were my old man, you would. Calvin Coolidge was all about working hard uh, honest day's work and uh, wasn't going to have his kids living the life of luxury here just because he's the president of the United States now. Uh, some some highlights from the Coolidge presidency. He spoke out against the lynching of blacks because you remember now the KKK had this rebirth uh, when Woodrow Wilson was president for eight years because he he reinvigorated the Klan. So the KKK in the South, they were really emboldened uh, under the uh, Democratic presidency of Woodrow Wilson. And Coolidge was having none of this. He boldly spoke out against the Ku Klux Klan uh, during his time in office. And in fact, if you look at lynchings during the Coolidge presidency, uh, the lynchings uh, in the United States went down by roughly 80% during his time in office. He was having none of it. And uh, he gets zero credit for his civil rights stances. And, and in fact, he embraced civil rights for all Americans. He signed the Indian Citizenship Act. Now, if you could please bear with me for just one moment here, I, I'm gonna spend some time on a speech that Coolidge uh, gave in 1925 in Omaha, Nebraska, uh, where he talked about race. Because remember, the KKK, resurrected by Woodrow Wilson, and it's uh, the, the era where immigration is, is really taking off. We're talking Ellis Island, um, mass immigration from Europe. So there's some pushback on that. Uh, America has just fought a war in Europe where uh, she lost over 100,000 young men, and the country is maybe not in the best place uh, as far as race relations go. So I want to just read from this speech because I feel like if it had been recorded, if, if that were possible at the time, I really think that it, it would play a large part in uh, the annals of American history. And unfortunately, the speech was given just before we started really recording this kind of stuff. And, and I just think that it's, it's important. And as you're listening to some of these excerpts, just understand that Calvin Coolidge truly believed all men are created equal. And he put that into practice. And, and I just want to read you some excerpts from this Omaha speech, 1925. Here's Calvin Coolidge. He said, if we all believe the same thing, 
and thought the same thoughts and applied the same valuations to all the occurrences about us, we should reach a state of equilibrium closely akin to an intellectual and spiritual paralysis. It is the ferment of ideas, the clash of disagreeing judgments, the privilege of the individual to develop his own thoughts and shape his own character that makes progress possible. So he's, he's referencing here how, look, we're all different, but man, we have a common bond and it's called the United States of America. And he elaborates on that more later in the speech here. He said, to a great extent, this country owes its beginnings to the determination of our hardy ancestors to maintain complete freedom in religion. Instead of a state church, we have decreed that every citizen shall be free to follow the dictates of his own conscience as to his religious beliefs and affiliations. Under that guarantee, we have erected a system which certainly is justified by its fruits. Under no other could we have dared to invite the peoples of all countries and creeds to come here and unite with us in creating the state of which we are all citizens. It's beautiful, man. Just love that. So he continues here. Uh, and he's talking about immigrants still um, in this speech, this section. Uh, having invited them here, having accepted their great and varied contributions to the building of the nation, it is for us to maintain in all good faith those liberal institutions and traditions which have been so productive of good. The bringing together of all these different national, racial, religious, and cultural elements has made our country a kind of composite of the rest of the world. And we can render no greater service than by demonstrating the possibility of harmonious cooperation among so many various groups. Every one of them has something characteristic and significant of great value to cast into the common fund of our material, intellectual, and spiritual resources. This is a beautiful speech. It truly is. And it totally encapsulates what the American ideal is. I just love this speech so much. A couple more excerpts here, if you, if you don't mind. He's talking about World War I now and how it really tested the United States. He said, the war brought a great test of our experiment in amalgamating these varied factors into a real nation with the ideals and aspirations of a united people. None was expected from the obligation to serve when the hour of danger struck. The event proved that our theory had been sound. Listen to this. On a solid foundation of national unity, there had been erected a superstructure which in its varied parts had offered full opportunity to develop all the range of talents and genius that had gone into its making. Well nigh all the races, religions, and nationalities of the world were represented in the armed forces of this nation as they were in the body of our population. No man's patriotism was impugned or service questioned because of his racial origin, his political opinion, or his religious convictions. Coolidge went on, by tolerance, I do not mean indifference to evil. Listen to this. Listen to this. He's talking about tolerating those that are not like us. At this point in the speech, he says, by tolerance, I do not mean indifference to evil. I mean respect for different kinds of good. By tolerance, I do not mean indifference to evil. I mean respect for different kinds of good. Whether one traces his, and by the way, by the way, this next line was used by Martin Luther King some 30, 40 years later. 
whether one traces his Americanism back three centuries to the Mayflower or three years of the steerage is not half so important as whether his Americanism of today is real and genuine. No matter by what various crafts we came here, we are all now in the same boat. <laughs> I mean, that's that's so perfectly written. No matter by what various crafts we came here, we are all now in the same boat. So that Omaha speech in 1925 from Calvin Coolidge is definitely worth noting. So one of the things Coolidge said along the way was, quote, you never know what you can do until you try. And boy, did he try and succeed at so much. He signed three tax cuts. Revenue to the federal government increased during that time, I'd like to point out. Uh, he cut the U.S. debt by a third by cutting spending. Hmm. Amazing. The guy would meet with Herbert Mayhew Lord every week and go over the federal budget line by line. And I mean, line by line. He saved money for taxpayers on the dye that was used on bags to deliver the mail from the Postal Service. I mean, that, that dye got the axe. <laughs> he was serious about saving money. He even budgeted the number of pencils used uh, by the staff at the White House. He challenged the staff to use less pencils. Um, he used the line, find more cuts all the time. Find more cuts. I don't know if I have in my notes here a story. Maybe it'll come up later. But uh, I know for a fact that he he challenged the uh, the lady that ran the kitchen at the White House uh, to cut uh, grocery expenses. And I believe that she got the expenditures uh, for the White House kitchen down from 11,000 something down to 9,000 something. His response to her was uh, just classic Coolidge. It was brief, you know. So uh, the White House cook, Miss Riley, reduced her annual purchases uh, to $9,116, down from $11,667. So she saved $2,500 uh, from the year before. And Coolidge wrote uh, a note to her. Very fine improvement. <laughs> Love this guy. Uh, okay, so where were we here? Uh, he cleaned up corruption in government, which was a, a large part of the Harding presidency, unfortunately. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Teapot Dome scandal where Harding's buddies were making money um, off of some oil reserves. And uh, this was um, this was bad. And and Coolidge. <laughs> See, this is where it pays to not be the cool kid, because when you're not the cool kid, then you're not invited to all the fun meetings and, and you're clean when when it hits the fan. And that was the case with Coolidge. And in Coolidge, actually, the way he handled uh, the, the cleanup of that scandal, even Democrats praised him. He was able to, to root out the corruption that was happening uh, in the executive branch uh, of the government. Now, I am so jealous of this fact of Calvin Coolidge. He slept 11 hours a night. Wow. But look, if you're not in everybody's business, do you need to be up at all hours of the day? Huh? Uh, and he actually said uh, that he can't screw anything up while he's sleeping. So there you go. Uh, let's see. Oh, this tax cuts. More, more on this stuff. Listen to this. He famously said that he wanted Americans to work less for the government and more for themselves. In quote. Cut taxes to 25%. He 
He famously said, the business of America is business. He was beloved. I mean, in the short time that he was president before re-election uh, in 1924, well, the first time he was going to be actually elected president, uh, he didn't even, he won in a landslide. Uh, he, he didn't have to go out and campaign. It was a cakewalk. And uh, we'll get to maybe some of the reasons that he didn't go out and campaign in 1924. We'll get to that here shortly. But uh, he and Grace were absolutely uh, an incredible couple. Uh, he loved her dearly. Uh, she was gregarious, uh, where he was, you know, kind of, I don't know, kept to himself. <laughs> but his dry sense of humor was something else. Uh, oh, one cool thing about Grace I've got to mention. She was a huge baseball fan. And she would go to the Washington Senators baseball games and she would keep the scorebook. That's how knowledgeable she was about baseball. And, and she was so graceful, no pun intended. Uh, she was a great White House hostess. And there was this story where she posed for an official portrait and they had um, their dog, uh, who was white, was in the painting with her. And so you got the white dog and then you got Grace in a red dress. And Calvin walked by while the guy was painting it. And he's like, he thought maybe she looked a little too provocative. You know, I don't know. He's wearing a red dress. And he just asked, like, why she couldn't just wear white? And the painter said that the red set off the white dog in the portrait. So then Calvin suggested that he paint the dog red in the dress white. <laughs> just love this guy. Uh, the first couple, I mean, they had just great senses of humor. There was another story where they were at a farm, like a had like cutting edge technology at this farm. You know, look, look, the great advances of the 1920s that we're doing at this uh, state of the art farm. And so they're getting uh, two separate tours, uh, the Coolidge's. So Grace is on a tour. Calvin is on a tour. And Mrs. Coolidge, she was taken to a large enclosure with a hen house and it was filled to capacity with hens and little chicks, but she could only see one rooster and she remarked about it. And the farmer boasted that his prize rooster, he was able to service the entire lot. The farmer said, and she queried, she goes, well, just how many times a day does this prize rooster copulate? When told that the rooster could mate perhaps 35 to 40 times a day, Mrs. Coolidge twinkled to her host quote, you must be sure to tell that to President Coolidge when he passes this way, end quote. So about a half an hour later, the part of Calvin's tour that takes him by this hen house, um, the story is relayed uh, to him about this rooster and what Mrs. Coolidge uh, wanted passed along. And, and so he gets the message and then he nodded and um, he was quiet for a moment and they were just about to leave the area. And Calvin said, hmm. 30 or 40 times a day. Same hen? And the farmer goes, oh, no, no. He services them all. Coolidge didn't miss a beat and responded, quote, you be sure to tell that to Mrs. Coolidge. <laughs> uh, they were great parents, too. Uh, once when uh, Calvin Jr., his son, showed up to dinner at the White House dressed a little too casually for Calvin's taste, uh, he remarked, remember, you're coming to dine with the president. So as I mentioned earlier, uh, they loved animals. They had lots of pets. And 
this was an interesting uh, excerpt here that I that I read. He was known for an incredible pet collection. How about that? Uh, at various times, the Coolidge White House uh, housed four cats, nine dogs, and seven birds. He was there, remember, five and a half years. Uh, even weirder are the exotics. Coolidge was gifted a black bear, a wallaby, two lion cubs. He named them Tax Reduction and Budget Bureau. Uh, let's see, a, a duker, D-U-I-K-E-R, a small variety of antelope. Uh, those ended up in a zoo, uh, but they had a raccoon named Rebecca, who was originally, this is so weird, originally given to the White House to be eaten, but remained a pet in the White House, taking baths in the presidential suite. Grace Coolidge also tried to raise a flock of ducks. By the way, speaking of Grace, there's a famous picture of her and, and Rebecca the raccoon. Uh, so anyway, Grace Coolidge tried to raise a flock of ducks in one of the bathrooms. Apparently, they grew a bit too large and also ended up in the zoo. Okay, um, I'm just looking through here. I really do judge people based on what they name their pets. And I have not previewed this list. I, I just I Googled it because I knew they had a lot and I just hit print. And so let's let's go through this together, shall we? Uh, those four cats I mentioned, their names were Bounder. Hmm. Climber, <laughs> Tiger, and Blackie. First two birds they had were uh, Nip and Tuck. <laughs> it's 100 years ago, y'all. Uh, Snowflake and Peter Piper. Goldie, Mockingbird, Do Funny. <laughs> By the way, I want to thank uh, Leah Houghton, a student at the College of St. Joseph, who wrote, uh, who wrote up um, a little blurb on each of these pets from the pet's point of view. Uh, dog names. Here we go. Peter Pan, Paul Pry. I'm just, I'm, I'm reading here. Um, just these little summaries. Very cool. Uh, Rob Roy, Beans, <laughs> who apparently was the head of the animal uh, household there. Beans, the dog. Uh, Prudence Prim, Tiny Tim, Diana of Wildwood. Uh, and then in parentheses, it says Calamity Jane. Blackberry, uh, so there you go. Those are the dogs and cat names at the White House. Oh, not only was Calvin frugal with the people's money. Oh, I'm sorry. Hang on. <laughs> I just noticed it. This printed up another page. Hold on. I got some more happening here with the animals. Uh, let's see. King Cole. That was another dog. Uh, oh, now we're into the exotics. Now I get to my frugal story here. Hang on. Uh, the exotics. So Rebecca, the raccoon we've talked about. Uh, Bruno was, um, is he? he? Oh, he's the black bear from Mexico. Wallaby. That's, I mean, that's boring because it was a wallaby. Uh, tax reduction, budget bureau. We mentioned the lion cubs. Uh, I already mentioned uh, Duke here. Okay, so I was starting to talk about how he was frugal, not only with the people's money, but with his own money. Uh, when he was the nominee for vice president, he had to correct a newspaper because it, it did an article about him that said that he paid 35 bucks a month rent. And he had to correct them and say, no, 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 no. In Northampton, I only paid 32 bucks a month rent. And this little note says the governor wants the report corrected so his landlord will not raise the rent. <laughs> love it, love it, love it. Okay, let's see here. American prosperity during the 20s. 
was legendary in our nation's story. Many people with these awesome tax cuts, which I scribbled down here. You got to hear these tax rates uh, during the presidencies of Harding and Coolidge. So they get into office and the top tax rate in 1921 is 73%. Uh, they get that down uh, within about a year down to 58%. In 1924, Coolidge successfully gets it down to 46% for the highest uh, tax rate. And by 1926, it's down to 25%. And so, and you'll remember now, by the time Kennedy's president, John F. Kennedy is president about 40 years later, the highest uh, marginal tax rate was 97%. So then they, they passed the tax cut in Kennedy's memory uh, after the fact. I forgot what that got it down to. But remember, when Reagan got it down, he got it all the way down to 28%. It still wasn't where Coolidge had it at 25% in the 1920s. Anyhow, just a fun little aside there as far as uh, tax rates go. And, and there was more money coming in to the federal government. And, and this is, I'm trying to figure out how to word this here. So people were taking home more pay. The government was getting more income through taxes because of the economic prosperity. But, but keep this in mind as well. The weekend became a thing during the Coolidge presidency. A lot of people uh, credit uh, Henry Ford for saying, look, you know what? We've made plenty of cars Monday through Friday. We're going to give you Saturday off. Well, that economic prosperity was in large part to the economic policies, the healthy economy of the 1920s under Coolidge. And so workers in America were able to produce enough to say, you know what, the companies were satisfied, starting with Ford, with five days a week uh, as, as, you know what, we've done enough. Five days, you take Saturday and Sunday off. So the, you can thank Calvin Coolidge and Henry Ford for uh, Saturdays, for the weekend. I think that's fun. So regular middle-class Americans, you know, I mean, they, they could now purchase luxuries, what had been considered luxuries just a few years before. They had more money to spend. Um, electricity, by the way, in American homes at the start of the Harding Coolidge uh, presidency was at 35%. It increases to 70% uh, by the end of Calvin's term in 1929. 90% of urban homes ended up having electricity by then. 70% was when you include all the rural homes too. So 90% of urban homes had electricity. Telephones, movie theaters became more ubiquitous. Running water, indoor plumbing, washing machines, stoves, refrigerators, irons, all became popular and more accessible to the average American during the Coolidge years. Um, in 1920, 9% of Americans owned an automobile. By 1929, 60% of Americans owned them. And I think that's awesome. And you can obviously thank the assembly line uh, for a lot of that and the mass production as well. Radio sales rose by 1,000%. Granted, you know, now you could have things to tune in. Uh, KDKA went on the air. So over the course of the Harding Coolidge presidency, eight years in office, a 1,000% increase in radio sales. Uh, Coolidge doesn't get credit for being one of the country's funniest presidents. Uh, his dry wit, his sense of humor. He was <laughs> he was known for never smiling or laughing at his own jokes. 
uh, which I totally respect. I could almost see him almost like a uh, Bob Newhart. I think that might be a good comparison as far as just the dry sense of humor, the serious face when he's delivering the, the zinger. But uh, this is one of the more famous stories of him. An anecdote finds a talkative and socially prominent hostess cornering Coolidge at a party and telling him that the president must help her out. She's made a bet that she can get him to say more than two words at the party. His reply, you lose. I mean, man's a hero for that line right there. When you think of the serious, stern-looking Calvin Coolidge of the 1920s, you don't think of him in this light. This is awesome. Uh, former President Calvin Coolidge enjoyed, quote, buzzing for his bodyguards and then hiding under his desk as they frantically searched for him. <laughs> uh, I mentioned before uh, he slept 11 hours a night. Uh, actually, uh, some rep- some folks write that he slept 12 hours a night. But anyway, when he woke up, uh, the first thing he'd ask an aide was, is the country still there? <laughs> uh, he was... Um, Known for his practical jokes, just like the buzzer in the desk, the Secret Service looking for him. Uh, he uh, solemnly poured cream into his saucer rather than his teacup. Now listen to this. He waited for all of his guests to do the same for fear of misbehaving in front of the president. And then without comment, placing the saucer on the ground for the dog to drink from. <laughs> <clears throat> During the 1924 presidential campaign, a newsman sought Coolidge out, quote, Mr. President, what do you think of prohibition? No comment, replied Coolidge. Will you say something about unemployment? No, said Coolidge. Will you tell us your views about the world situation, persisted the reporter? No. About your message to Congress? No. The disappointed reporter started to leave, but as he reached the door, Coolidge said, wait, so the man turned around and Coolidge cautioned, now remember, don't quote me. Oh, tough job being a reporter, Calvin Coolidge on the White House beat. Uh, let's see here. Some other things I want to mention. The Budget and Accounting Act of 1921, uh, courtesy of uh, President Harding, would now require the president to submit to Congress a budget proposal at the start of each regular session. This is something that Woodrow Wilson had vetoed a year before. So that's where we get the president's budget proposal every year. You can think Harding and Coolidge. He just hated overtaxation. He called it legalized larceny, which is so well said. And boy, does that strike a chord uh, in 2023 America, as much as it did in 1923 America. Someone that was very close to Calvin Coolidge during his presidency was the Treasury Secretary, Andrew Mellon. It's a big reason why the Roaring Twenties became such an era of prosperity for the United States. Those two guys right there, Calvin Coolidge and Andrew Mellon. Uh, I wanted to read a little bit from the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation. Uh, this is an article that appears on their website. Uh, and it, it, it talks about how Coolidge was the last chief executive to have cut the size of government. Think about that. The last president to leave the government smaller than how he found it. In outlining his philosophy of governance in his 1925 inaugural address, Coolidge said, I favor the policy of economy, not because I wish to save money, but because I wish to save people. 
He understood that debt led to inflation, which he abhorred. This article continues. It says, Coolidge was consumed by a desire to cut down on government spending. In a 1924 talk, he remarked that the budget idea, I may admit, is a sort of obsession with me. <laughs> I believe in budgets. I want other people to believe in them. Do you wonder then that at times I dream of balance sheets? <laughs> that at times I dream of balance sheets and sinking funds and deficits and tax rates and all the rest? Coolidge wasn't kidding when he said he obsessed over budgets. Not only did he meet just about every week with his budget bureau director, General Herbert Lord, we mentioned earlier, to discuss the government's budget, he also campaigned to lower spending in the White House. We talked about the White House cook, Miss Riley, who was able to lower uh, expenses. This write-up continues. The massive debt that was accumulated during World War I had ballooned to $27.4 billion. So it was $14.6 billion in 1918. And then it got up to $27.4 uh, His policies were able to get it down to $17.3 billion by the time the Harding and Coolidge presidencies were over in 1929. So again, we had $14 billion debt. World War I happens. Our debt is $27.4. He gets it down to $17.3. And this article continues. Today, many argue that politicians cannot cut government spending because they would never get reelected. Yet Coolidge proves the opposite here as well. In 1924, running on the record of accomplishments of the Harding and Coolidge administrations. Remember, this guy just vetoed a bonus bill. This guy had to clean up the Harding mess from the Teapot Dome scandal. And yet all of these things that you would assume, uh, at least in our, through our uh, lens of modern politics, uh, would would make him uh, an unpopular candidate in 1924. Uh, he won a three-way race for a full term in the White House. He didn't just claim a plurality, this thing says here. He took an absolute majority. Republicans also maintained healthy majorities in both chambers of Congress. That's incredible. Let's see here. Uh, oh, <sighs> The, the Muscle Shoals, I won't spend too much time on this, but there was this dam that the government had built to specifically help during World War I. And now that we were in peacetime, Coolidge thought, you know, hey, this should be in private hands now. This, we're we're going to make this thing uh, a private entity. But Coolidge lost this fight. And it ended up, uh, if, boy, you, you recall... The New Deal with Franklin Roosevelt and the Tennessee Valley Authority. So this is where that really began. It was in 1933. Roosevelt used the dam, this Muscle Shoals Dam. If you recall, between the New Deal right up until the 90s in this country, that was that was kind of the way this country operated. And so Coolidge was ahead of his time. Uh, oh, by the way, uh, I have to say that charity was a big part of the Calvin Coolidge message to Americans. He constantly encouraged charity and churches and groups to, to go out and help out other Americans. And, you know, progressivism and the government handling everything was on the rise. It's just fascinating, this era, this clashing of, of ideas. It just... 
it's it's stunning how popular Calvin Coolidge was when he had everything working against him, except for results, because the proof was in the pudding when when the Harding and Coolidge economic policies were put into place and rescued a nation from a, a, a tough uh, economic time there in 1920. And like I said, the roaring 20s. But but he pushed for uh, charities and didn't want the government to be looked at as, as this responsible party when when private individuals and communities could take care of themselves instead of the government. And, oh, another fun fact. Uh, I'm kind of all over the map, I realize. But the nation's first conference call, okay, because telephone call, telephones were you know still new in those days. That's where he uh, used that line about dreaming of balance sheets. I want to point that out. Let's see here. Um, one of the things that uh, I kind of took out of order uh, during this time uh, was one of the major tragedies of Calvin Coolidge's life was in the spring of 1924. When Calvin Jr. and his brother John uh, famously played a game of tennis there on the White House lawn, and uh, Calvin wasn't wearing socks, he got a blister, a blood infection. They took him to Walter Reed Hospital. He would only live another week. He was just 16 years old. And I've read accounts about how uh, President Coolidge sat with Calvin Jr. And he described the scene as just so tragic and so sad because uh, the boy was in and out of consciousness. He was hallucinating. It was just a terrible, uh, painful way to go for the 16-year-old. And um, this quote, I think, from Calvin Coolidge really speaks volumes. He said, when he died, the power and glory of the presidency went with him. So as effective as a president Calvin Coolidge was, there really was minimal joy uh, in the last, guess what, four and a half years of his five and a half year presidency. Uh, a lot of historians said that he would have absolutely been diagnosed with depression, which you could totally understand, having gone through the loss of his young child. Um, and, and, you know, he was, he still had a job to do for the country. But uh, I just can't imagine that. His other son, by the way, John, would live till the age of 93. And um, oh, by the way, by the way, uh, back to uh, Calvin Jr. Uh, it's so sad when there's a picture of the family. And I'm pretty sure I don't have it right in front of me. I'm pretty sure that this, this family picture is on the front porch there. And it's the day... Because the way the story goes is that, you know, he wanted to get out of these dress clothes and he was kind of in a hurry, didn't bother putting socks on and went out and played tennis without socks and it cost him his life. But I'm pretty sure that the, the, there's a family portrait, a family photograph there just hours before that blister um, ended up uh, occurring. Anyway, but John lived till the age of 93 and passed away in the summer of the year 2000. So the Bush-Gore campaign was in full swing when the other son of Calvin Coolidge and Grace Coolidge uh, passed away in the year 2000, age of 93. Amazing. Um, as I've mentioned, Calvin Coolidge uh, deeply respected the founding documents 
of this nation, the founding fathers of this nation. He was, I get really, he was the last small government president, truly. It's, it's, it's amazing that that philosophy hasn't even been part of the calculus of presidents in the last century. Uh, he was in uh, South Dakota in the summer of 1927. Remember, he could still run. This is before FDR. This is before the Constitutional Amendment. He could have run for president. He was popular. He could have kept going. But uh, he did the, uh, the back half of the Harding term. He did the four years of his term. And in the summer of 1927, he was at Mount Rushmore. And he passed out this famous moment in American history where he passes out little slips of paper that say the quote, I do not choose to run for president in 1928. And while he presided over a booming American economy and he was able to do so through tax cuts, smaller government expenditures, by the late 1920s, economists started to inject this school of thought that really took hold with the mindset of uh, a lot of companies in that, look, deficits are fine. Now, can remember, that's the opposite of what Calvin Coolidge preached, okay? And these uh, economists were starting to say, you can, you can, you can take, and, and by the way, this is pointed out on the Calvin Coolidge uh, Presidential Foundation website, I believe. They called this, uh, later this, this kind of uh, philosophy had a name, uh, Keynesian Economics. So, um, in fact, there was a, uh, uh, a Chamber of Commerce quote from 1927 that said, having a deficit is no great cause for alarm. Because remember now, Coolidge has already brought it down. He's cut the deficit, but nah, we don't have to worry about it here. Ah, keep spending, whatever. So, so Coolidge is going to hand the reins over to Herbert Hoover, who has no problem spending money and racking up deficits, which is exactly how Hoover tried to rescue the economy once it hit the fan because of all of the debt and the bubbles burst and you've got the land deals and all the collapsing there and the stocks and you know the story. So this kind of uh, sea change in attitudes toward deficits and going into debt, which was again, the opposite of what Calvin Coolidge preached and practiced as president. These kind of ideas were really starting to take root in the United States. They thought the good times, they would last forever. We can spend money we don't have. It's okay. That obviously proved to be incorrect. And of course, the massive spending of a Hoover and FDR especially, that's what uh, just compounded the issue, which enabled the Great Depression to last for the next 15 plus years, only to be rescued by the massive uh, undertaking that was uh, providing for World War II. I think that the quote from Coolidge to a friend of his uh, could be applied today, uh, just as it was in early 1933, as a Franklin Roosevelt was getting ready to take the reins as president of the United States and fundamentally change this nation. The quote from Coolidge to his friend was, I feel like I no longer fit in with these times. Wow, that was a very uh, accurate quote. And sadly, it was one of the uh, last quotes attributed to Coolidge uh, because a short time later, he was at the age of 60. Uh, he was actually upstairs 
at his house and uh, Grace came home and the house was quiet and and she goes upstairs. She, she was looking for him and uh, he had uh, arrived home and he'd come home, I think, because he was feeling ill. Uh, so he left work early. He was in his bedroom. He had collapsed and uh, died of a heart attack. Uh, age of 60, Grace found him there. Just a, a sad scene. I hope that in the course of our uh, conversation today, that, that you've concluded, uh, as I have, that Calvin Coolidge uh, was probably the best president the United States ever had. And I'm talking about, I don't just limit him to the economy. I'm talking about race relations, um, his view of America and the founders, uh, his ability to literally bring both parties together on things like cleaning up a scandal that he inherited from the president that picked him to be his vice president. Uh, he cut taxes. Uh, he cut spending. He loved this country. Uh, he knew that the people of this country are, are what made it great and can still make it great going forward. The answer lies with us. And Coolidge understood that. And never mind the fact that the guy was just hilarious. So <laughs> that helps too. But July 4th, 1872, Calvin Coolidge, born in Plymouth Notch, Vermont, uh, on the... That's the other thing. Come on now. He was born on the 4th of July. And you also take the awesome story in history, uh, American history, that on July 4th, 50 years to the day later, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson both died on the same day, and it was July 4th. Come on. I just think that that is also an awesome fact uh, in American history. So, uh, 30th president of the United States, an American worth remembering, Calvin Coolidge. Thank you so much for listening to me, uh, the Coolidge fanboy, talking to you about his extraordinary life today. Now, do what Calvin Coolidge would want you to do on Independence Day. Go be free. Our family has grown. Welcome to the world, Hannah baby. Introducing a new collection, Hannah Soft, made with Tencel. It's so breathable, with stretchy comfort for all of baby's first moments. And it's cool and gentle on their skin all year round. Entrusted Hannah quality for your most precious gift. Hannah Soft, made to last. Shop now at hannahanderson.com.